0: It's the Bits and Pieces podcast, your monthly roundup of topical tidbits to put the bigger picture together.
1: Hello and welcome to the Bits and Pieces podcast for April 2022. I'm Fiona McGregor, I'm one of the Indie Live podcast team and this is the April roundup of what's caught our eye this month. We'll be covering the Tories lurching from one crisis to the next. We've got a couple of indie events to report back from. We also have a look at Northern Ireland, where Sinn Féin might be providing the next First Minister. But let's start with the war in Ukraine, which is still raging. Sanctions are beginning to bite. And in the European Parliament, Guy Verhofstadt was adamant that more should be being done.
0: You know why your strategy doesn't work? Because progressive packages of sanctions with an autocrat doesn't work. That works with a democracy, with Democrats, who have a public opinion, a real public opinion. In Russia, there is no longer a real public opinion. The reality is that it doesn't work because the fifth package is what? Coal. It's ridiculous. It's only 3% of the imports from Russia. Swift, the ban. Ridiculous. More than 50% of the financial institutions are still outside the ban. And the oligarchs. The oligarchs, yeah, we extend a little bit to oligarchs. The oligarchs will escape, finally, the sanctions or lose a little bit of their money. You need to tackle the 6,000 people around to Putin, the real people working with Putin. And we have the list. Alexei Navalny, the foundation of Navalny, has made a list of 6,000 people. These people you need to tackle. And so I have a request to you. I'm sorry that I'm telling it to you because I think that for 90% you agree with me. In fact, I'm pretty sure about that. So I wanted to say that to Michel and to Van der Leyen. In the name of this 2012, it's time to change your strategy. It's time to have an extra European Council the fastest as possible and to go for the full package of sanctions immediately so that you can really make a difference. All the rest will not work. All the rest will prolong the war. All the rest will be more killings on the Ukrainian side. And finally, a little advice to my friends in Germany. I think that after the horrors of the Second World War, They have emerged a strong and democratic Germany, a very strong and democratic Germany. But from such a Germany, I expect leadership, leading by example and not dragging defeat as we see it today.
1: Johnson made something of a surprise visit to Ukraine this month. And to look at it in its best light, it was a gesture of support to the beleaguered people of Ukraine. To those of us a little bit more cynical about Johnson's motives, it did look a bit like a photo shoot opportunity. Others thought it might be a distraction from the gathering storm around the party gate situation as the Met Police finally start issuing some fines. The PM and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak have been issued with fixed penalty notices for breaking the rules that they set. The conclusion of the public is that it should be a resigning offence, with 72% of them in a poll saying that he should resign. Also, doing the rounds as a heat map showing that the word most associated with the Prime Minister is liar. As Westminster returned from their Easter recess, Johnson was summoned to the House, where he answered almost every question, repeating the same uh, mealy mouthed half apology, which we're going to share with you now.
2: Well, uh, Mr Speaker, I, I thank you very much, but I want to repeat what I've said about the, uh, the event in question for which I've received an, an FPN. Uh, I apologise heartily for that, and uh, I was my mistake entirely. I, I thought it was within the, with the rules, and it has turned out uh, not to be the case. As for uh, other events, I'm afraid I'm going to have to uh, stick by what I've said previously and await and I hope he will uh, allow me, uh, wait for the conclusion of the investigation.
1: In response... Leader of the opposition Keir Starmer summoned up every ounce of prosecutorial gravitas and shredded him. This is the first half of that speech.
3: What a joke. Even now, as the latest mealy-mouthed apology stumbles out of one side of his mouth, a new set of deflections and distortions pour from the other. But the damage is already done. The public have made up their mind. They don't believe a word the Prime Minister says. They know what he is. As ever with this Prime Minister, those close to him find themselves ruined and the institutions he vows to protect damaged. Good ministers forced to walk away from public service the Chancellor's career up in flames and the leader of the Scottish Conservatives rendered pathetic. For all those unfamiliar with this Prime Minister's career, this isn't some fixable glitch in the system. It's the whole point. It's what he does. It's who he is. He knows he's dishonest and incapable of changing. So he drags everybody else down with him. The more people debase themselves... Order!
2: What I would say is, I think we said dishonest. I don't think that's an appropriate word.
3: We don't want to talk about breaking rules, do we? I don't think that's a good time to discuss. Mr Speaker... I respect that ruling from uh, the Chair. The Prime Minister knows what he is, and so he drags everyone else down with him. The more people debase themselves parroting his absurd defences, the more the public will believe all politicians are the same, all as bad as each other, and that suits this Prime Minister just fine. Some members opposite seem oblivious to the Prime Minister's game. Some know what he's up to Mm -hmm. but are too weak to act. But others are gleefully playing the part the Prime Minister cast for them. A minister on the radio this morning saying it's the same as a speeding ticket. No, it's not. No one has ever broken down in tears because they couldn't drive faster than 20 miles an hour outside a school. Don't insult the public with this nonsense. But, Mr Speaker, as it happens, the last minister who got a speeding ticket and then lied about it ended up in prison, and I know because I prosecuted him. And last week, last week, we were treated to a grotesque spectacle one of the Prime Minister's loyal supporters accusing teachers and nurses of drinking in the staff room during lockdown. Members opposite can associate themselves with that if they want, but those of us who take pride in our NHS workers, our teachers and every other key worker who got us through those dark days will never forget their contempt. Plenty didn't agree with every rule the Prime Minister wrote, but they followed them nonetheless. Because in this country, we respect others. We put the greater good above narrow self-interest, and we understand that the rules apply to all of us.
1: Powerful stuff. Johnson sat on his bench looking like a sulky schoolboy outside the headmaster's office. The next few clips are very short. You'll hear from Janet Daby, Martin Doherty-Hughes, Peter Grant and Alison Thewlis, who all make very valid points. Note again the absolute woeful non-apology from Johnson.
4: Uh, Mr Speaker, this is the first Prime Minister in office to make and break his own rules for committing lockdown offences. Neil Ferguson resigned from SAGE and Catherine Caldwood quit as Scotland's Chief Medical Officer,
1: both for breaking Covid rules. They realised that action speaks louder than words, and they took responsibility. Why is it right for them to resign and not for the Prime Minister?
5: Yeah.
2: I, I, I thank you very much, and I repeat the apology that I have given.
6: Mr. Speaker, let me first of all wish the Prime Minister good luck in the trip to India, where I am sure he will raise the ongoing arbitrary detention of Jagtar Singh Johal with Prime Minister Modi. But that said. If the Prime Minister believes that they inadvertently misled the House based on evidence given at the time, surely the Prime Minister would then agree with me, and also with Alex Macy of uh, The Spectator, that such a defence rests on the proposition that the Prime
7: Minister is an idiot. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The whole function of this place hangs on the belief that everyone behaves in an honourable way at all times. Unfortunately, the people that matter out there do not believe that we do. We now know that 72% of them think the Prime Minister is part of the problem. For 72% of the citizens of these four nations, they cannot hear the two words Boris and Johnson without immediately hearing a word that I'm not allowed to say on their behalf. Is the Prime Minister really going to look my constituents in the eye and tell them that the best future they can hope for is a future under a Prime Minister whose character and conduct can only be described in words that are banned from use in this place.
4: I got many emails from my constituents over the weekend. One of these has stuck with me. It is from Victoria, who worked uh, in respiratory wards during the COVID-19 pandemic. She says, I have watched people die alone, sick and confused, begging us to see their family one last time, with only us to hold their hands and comfort them. I have watched family members banging on the locked doors ward doors crying, screaming and playing for us to let us hold their dying loved ones. We were the ones that watched this and enforced this. We were the ones who had to tell families how sorry we were, but the government guidelines meant they could not hug their families one last time. Victoria says the time for apologies are over. We do not accept them. When will the Prime Minister resign?
1: And for our last two very short clips on the fallout from Partygate, we have an extract from Tommy Shepherd's excellent speech. You can watch the whole speech on our IndieLive Extra YouTube channel if you'd like to see it. I was particularly pleased to see he took the opportunity to drag the Scottish Tories into the frame.
8: Madam Deacon Speaker, I wanted to spend one minute just to talk about the situation in Scotland as well, because the member for Murray leads the Scottish Conservatives and he and his colleagues at the start of this year in the Scottish Parliament took, I believe, the right decision. They called upon the Prime Minister to go, but somehow, miraculously now, they have been whipped into line by central office and changed their mind on that question. And I can do no better and comment on that than actually quote from Professor Adam Tompkins, until recently a Conservative member of the Scottish Parliament and a very senior Conservative. He says, they have now reduced themselves and made their former position of principle look not only empty but risible by insisting that the Prime Minister is now somehow fit for office and that being fined by the police makes no difference. The Scottish Conservatives are in terminal decline again and this time it is their own fault. That from within the Conservative Party in Scotland itself. Now I know many people throughout Britain will look with horror at the way in which this government has introduced public service and denigrated many of the democratic institutions in their country. But I tell you this, people in Scotland look at this too, and they see this as further evidence of a British state in decline and one that does not represent their interests, and they are increasingly attracted by the opportunity to create a new country, an independent country with a different constitution. So I will be supporting... In conclusion, I will be supporting this resolution today and voting for it, and I caution Conservative Members to do so as well, because they are right. There is no room for personal attacks in this place or in politics. But understand this, actions do have consequences, and what goes wrong will come right. And if the Conservative Parliamentary Party tries to sweep this under the carpet, tries to acquiesce in the actions of this Prime Minister any further then they will pay a very heavy political price for it.
1: Ironically, the one that is going to do the most damage to the Prime Minister, Steve Baker, a man I think of as a Tory spiv and Brexit zealot. Baker gave a self-indulgent speech full of religious references and bizarre posturing, uh, which you'll be pleased to hear we're not going to include in this, but just the last minute or so was dynamite.
2: But the problem I have now got having watched what I would say is contrition. Beautiful, marvellous contrition is not my sense of it, is it rather in all sense only lasted as long as it took to get out of the headmaster's study. Yeah. and That is not good enough for me and it is not good enough for my voters. I am sorry, it is not. And I am afraid I am now in a position where I have to acknowledge that if the Prime Minister occupied any other office of senior responsibility, if he was a secretary of state, if he was a Minister of State, a Parliamentary Secretary, a Permanent Secretary, a Director General, if he was a Chief Executive of a private company or a Board Director, he would be long gone. The reason that he is not long gone is because removing a sitting Prime Minister is an extremely grave matter and goodness knows people will know I've had something to do with that too. It's an extremely grave matter, an extremely big decision and it tends to untether history and all of us, all of us should approach such things with reverence and awe and an awareness of the difficulty of doing it and the potential consequences. And that's why I've been tempted to forgive. But I have to say now, the possibility of that really, for me, has gone. I have to say, I'm sorry, that for not obeying the letter and the spirit, and I think we have heard that the Prime Minister did know what the letter was, the Prime Minister now should be long gone. Madam Deputy Deputy Speaker, I'll certainly vote for this motion, but really, the Prime Minister should just know the gig's up.
1: As I record this, there is a week left of April to go, and it may well be that by the time this podcast goes out, the Prime Minister will have resigned, and if he does, I think the smiling assassin Steve Baker will have had quite a big hand in that. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. So leaving the Westminster snake pit behind us, let's turn our thoughts to a more positive future for Scotland. And we're going to give you a little taster of the next Indie Jigsaw show, which will be broadcast on Independence Live's YouTube channel and on our podcast channels on the 6th of May. Now, the subject of this month's show is the development of a Scottish constitution. Our special guest is Mike Russell, who, of course, is taking forward some work to develop an interim constitution for Scotland. So here is a snippet of the interview between him and my India Live podcaster colleague Marlene Halliday.
9: It's very odd that we live in a country without a, essentially a codified constitution. There are bits of, of written constitutions. You know, you could say that the Scotland Act is a, is a bit of a written constitution, but of course, this is all subsumed in this 18th and 19th century idea of Westminster sovereignty. That whatever happens, Westminster is in charge and cannot ever be gainsaid by, by anybody and that devolution is essentially a delicate dance around that concept of Westminster sovereignty. So that creates an unreality. Uh, you, you know, if any, if any parliament believes it is so important and so mighty that it cannot be gainsaid, and indeed now uh, it doesn't even look as if a you know, prime minister has, has to answer to, to anybody but himself. In all yeah. those circumstances, we need to step away from that. And to say, what, what, what would reasonable citizens expect in the country in which they live? Not subjects but reasonable citizens expect in the 21st century in the country in which they live. So there is a crying demand, a need for a written codified constitution that we all know where we stand. And not only, and that will bring us on to the issue of of a transitional constitution, not only where we stand and are going to stand, but how we get from one to the other, because the the process of independence is extremely important. I, I absolutely buy into the The idea that in 2023 people will have the chance we hope to 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 vote and i buy into the idea that i want them to vote for that but then voting for it we have to make it happen and that means taking the will of the people and and converting that into a a set of arrangements that allow scotland to become independent and to join the world and to to a great extent that's what a transitional constitution is about it's not about the final outcome it's not about how you and I might want to see Scotland as a, an independent country, and we can certainly talk about that. You know, we all got ideas, and I think very radical ideas. It's how we get from A to B, and it's how we offer the reassurance to those people who did not support it that that process can be t- take place in an orderly fashion.
10: One of the first things that came to my mind when you know we got the invite from you to join in this discussion was a sort of sense of this could be something that could really engage people, really kind of, well, bring people together, but also create an even more of a sense of the country we belong to, the kind of nation that we want, what the country stands for, what it, yeah. actually what it doesn't stand for. I find that really, really exciting. Actually, I find it very moving, actually.
9: Um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. A constitution shouldn't be dry, and a constitution is an expression of who, who we think we are and where we stand in the world. Uh, you know, and, and essentially we should be aspirational and positive and inclusive about that. Now, I just don't think we would probably can do it all at once. Yeah. I think that that's something that we need to engage all our fellow citizens in, and that is best done after independence. But how do we get to that moment? And, and can we start it off? And I mean, I think the transitional constitution can also be inspirational. But yes, it's exciting, because it's a definition of who we are. And, and it's also something we can rely on as citizens. I mean, one of the Really difficult things in the current UK setup is you can't really rely on anything. There's a, a hodgepodge of things that you could sort of think about, but there's nothing that you can pick up and open up and say that is what guarantees. Me. That yeah. is what guarantees me, you know. And people go around, you know, in America, and you know they have constitutional problems with yeah. the constitution. Yeah. You know, they have the constitution there. Now, there's, there's also an example there of how. Sometimes things get, you know, out of date, set in stone, but have have people become constitutionalists. They believe absolutely. And then you get other constitutions that are not observed. You know, you can think of countries which have elaborate defences for citizens, which are simply ignored. So the constitution has to be alive and it has to be relevant and has to be actively used. So that we want to make sure we have a document that can do that.
10: I find it interesting, like recently, you know it's around uh, various yes groups meetings and kind of what have you and and every now and again you get someone and they're talking about referring back to often a very old historical document, so it might be the Declaration of our growth, but there are other ones that are um a bit more modern than that, but still quite old, so yeah. referring back to historical documents with the notion that well let's let's base our constitution on. What's in those? Again, I sympathise with that emotionally, especially the one about the declaration of our growth. But is it really, you know, is it really feasible to... You know, we we need a new constitution for a new country. So is it really... Yes, to what actually, extent Is it feasible to do
9: that? No, I, you know, I mean, you, you said quite rightly, I think there are 50 pages in this one. You know, life is complicated and it's more complicated than it was. Uh, and we must also be you know, fairly rigorous in our scholarship. About what these old documents say. I mean, on an emotional level, I am happy to accept that the Declaration of Our Brothers influenced the uh, de- the American Declaration of Independence. There is a fairly lively debate as to whether that was the case or not, uh, and in actual fact, you know, people will look at the claim of right and say probably more likely to have influenced it. So, uh, I mean, the the idea within the Declaration of Our Brothers. You know, although that also takes a little bit of pinch of salt, with that they, there was a essentially a contracted kingship, you know, it and if somebody it. let you down, you got rid of them and you got somebody else. You know, is a very, it's an absolutely right, is a good idea that has stood the test of time. There are other things, and there are ways of expressing. You think, yeah, it's really interesting, but it's not actually relevant to where we are now.
1: So that's from the May edition of the Indie Jigsaw Show. It'll go out on the 6th of May. Marlene and I will be in the chat room of our YouTube channel at 11 o'clock a.m. when it's broadcast. You'll find us in the comments section if you fancy dropping in for a chat. It's a really interesting discussion and a very important subject. It's interesting right now that there are several other people doing work on a constitution or a convention or some kind of declaration, all of whom convinced, I think, that that their approach is the one that's going to unlock the prize of Scottish independence. One such group is the Scottish Sovereignty Group, whose members include Dr Mark McNaught and also Sarah Saliers. Sarah gave an address at the ALBA party conference, which has caused a lot of interest in in that approach as well. So we're going to play an extract from Sarah's speech. It's interesting to look at the differences of approach. And just as a reminder, Independence Live and Indie Live podcasters are not party political. We support independence, but
11: we are not aligned with any particular party. There is a phrase, the unwritten constitution of the UK. And actually, that is... Inaccurate and many legal scholars will say it's inaccurate. We have a written constitution It's just that it's written in all kinds of different documents. So what we've got is an uncodified document But if you go and look up UK unwritten constitution Here's what you're going to find you might find yourself up on the page of the British library which has a wonderful article about Where the Constitution exists and it'll take you through Magna Carta the Declaration of Parliament the Bill of Rights and then on to the present, without a single mention of Scotland having any constitutional documents. So what happened? How did the pre-Union English constitution suddenly become the post-Union Scottish constitution? How did we all become English and bound by conventions, which by the way, people will say in terms of Scottish excavation of the constitution, My goodness, that's ancient history, isn't it? I mean, why are you bothering with that? Let's deal with today's realities. Today's realities include something called parliamentary sovereignty, which says that parliament is sovereign over the people and a million people on the streets don't have as much influence as a corporate lobbyist. It's up to parliament. That's parliamentary sovereignty. High court ruled in 2016 that there was no requirement for parliament, for the judges to listen to the electorate. Do you know Scotland had a very different system and Our ancestors, when they signed that forced marriage contract, and it was a contract, they put in a prenup. They put in a get out clause. The get out was, and this was done, whatever you think of the Presbyterian, Kirk and I have Presbyterian ancestors going all the way back. They were worried that Scotland would lose her character, her judicial character, her religious character, and her constitutional character. So they made it a condition of the union and the treaty that that constitution was upheld. Now, we've been excavating that constitution, and very in very short terms, what it says is it is a crime in Scotland to claim that a parliament is sovereign over the people. It is a crime punishable by forfeiture of power. It is a crime to attack human rights. It is a crime to attack the right to protest in Scotland. It is a crime to give money to your pals without parliamentary oversight. It is a crime to use the law to go after your political enemies. So some of us, you may know about uh, the SSRG and Albafest and, and Salvo, some of us are excavating those rights, because when you get married, if you have a prenup, and the other partner breaks the conditions of that contract, you've got a way out. And it's not a coincidence that we've been being told that our way out is Get a majority of MPs in Westminster. Oh, no, it's not. Prove that most people, including those who are only passing through, want it. Oh, no, it's not. Because the map that that the prison governors will give us to get out, the map that the abuser in the marriage will give you to get out is gaslighting. We have a way out. And that way out is to get the people of Scotland together, back up off their knees after the treachery and the betrayal and the centuries of abuse we we have suffered, and explain you... Our sovereign in Scotland. You lend your power to any government and you can take it back. Not by saying, oh, well, well, we'll vote in another party. You can sack them and you can replace them. So we are asking Conference to send this wonderful motion back to include the acknowledgement that power in Scotland is vested in the people and that we need to support the movement that is looking to create that grassroots tidal wave that says to the whole of Scotland and the whole of the world and the international courts, this is our law. This is the crime that's been committed against us. And we will, thank you very much, be reconvening the assembly of the people that was known as the convention of the estates, putting this government on trial and when they are found guilty, sacking them. So stirring stuff from
1: Sarah there, I think you'll agree. And we'll keep an eye on developments in that piece of work because the Scottish Sovereignty Group are carrying out a series of roadshows at the moment. At least one of them has been live streamed on the Independence Live YouTube channel. So if you want to know more about that, you will be able to find it. I think the bit missing for me is if we do manage to find some kind of legal loophole that nullifies the Act of Union and essentially we sneak out the back door, are we taking the majority of the population of Scotland with us At the moment, polls are about 50-50. Are we going to be recognised by other countries, which is, of course, the most important thing in deciding whether you're an independent country or not? Some issues there, I think, but really interesting to see how this pans out. We'll keep an eye on it. And now let's head over to America, where Mary Lou Macdonald, the president of Sinn Féin and leader of the opposition in Ireland, took part in an event by the US Council for Foreign Relations. Topics of conversation included Brexit, the Good Friday Agreement, and the possibility that there might be a Sinn Féin First Minister in Northern Ireland. You know,
12: we we said from the get-go that Brexit was a bad idea, that Brexit, I I think you wrote actually, you know, if you want to see the... You know how complex and the difficulties that Brexit is going to cause. Sum it up in one word: Ireland. And I, I think you got that in you got that in one, Amy, because when the peace process evolved, Ireland and Britain being members of the European Union simplified things greatly. Because you had, of course, the freedom to move for services, for 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 people, and so on. Um, And then along comes Brexit, ill-conceived, badly thought out. Brexit is Brexit, was what we were told when people asked, well, what is this? Um, And there was always going to be a a, a problem in Ireland. And then you roll on, and of course, the the Europeans and the British, however, belatedly accepted that there was a problem. And then we get to the protocol, which is a very, very um, ungainly arrangement, but a necessary one just to ensure that we don't have a border on our island, to ensure that our economy can function correctly and that the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement can thrive. So that, that's been a challenge. Political unionism, Boris Johnson. And, and the protocol Just to, yeah. that should establish some border checks on the, in the Irish Sea. In the Irish Sea, yeah. But, I mean, not that that is a new thing. I mean, there's been, there's been checks um, in, in the Irish Sea for quite some time. But, yes... It would mean no checks on the island. But, of course, the Europeans uh, have to protect the single market and so on. So all of that gets negotiated out. And then Boris Johnson tos and froes and, and, and plays a, a fairly merry dance uh, with these um, arrangements, arrangements that he had agreed to. And then political unionism grasps uh, this issue of the protocol as kind of a rallying cry not least because we're coming into elections and and where we're at now is that uh, unionism has walked away from the executive in Belfast, so that no longer functions. They had pulled away from the north-south ministerial arrangements, which is hugely problematic and illegal. And they are also now placing a question mark over whether or not they will in fact share power after the next election, should Sinn Féin emerge as the as the largest party, all of which simply goes to underscore the need for us to be steady, to be solid and to be united. Whatever our perspective on the constitutional question in understanding that the Good Friday Agreement has to hold, that the institutions have to hold, because what I believe has happened is Everything has changed. The the majority, the unionist majority in the north of Ireland is now gone. I mean, the the island was partitioned, Ireland was partitioned over a century ago. And the the notion was that you would have a permanent unionist majority up in the north. Um, That's now not the case. And I think unionism, knowing that the sands are shifting, um, is looking... To, to kind of hold back the, the tide of change and, see, and progress. Do you see a border poll in the next few years, five yes. years, ten years? Yes. What's your yes, is, five is years? The answer. Well, uh, what I see and what I think is absolutely necessary now is that we need to make preparation for constitutional change because there is no doubt that this is on the cards. And what we wish to see and what we are determined to see is constitutional change that is orderly, that is peaceful, and that is democratic. And that means you have to prepare. We talked a lot about a disorderly Brexit, if you remember, when when all of that was in play. We do not want to see a disorderly process of constitutional change on the island of Ireland. What do you think will happen if Michelle O'Neill here is First Minister? Do you think that there will be a functional... Yes, I I, I think there has to be. I think if... um, if Sinn Féin emerges as the largest party and if uh, Michelle O'Neill takes office as first minister, she will be a first minister for everybody. And I to say that's because D- the DUP may walk away from... Well, well, they have not made clear that they would be willing to serve in those circumstances. But, you know, at the end of the day, democracy has to be respected. The people will decide who is the largest party and... After that, then, to be honest with you, it is a case of everybody assessing the uh, result, agreeing a program for government, rolling up their sleeves and getting back to work and delivering for, for the people. Back in the day when Martin McGuinness first went into government with uh, Ian Paisley, do you remember that? And people thought this was an incredible thing. I mean, people were looking to see where pigs flying across the Belfast skyline because it seemed so improbable and people wondered, could this work? How could this work? It worked because we made it work. Um, And there has to be that sense of purpose and determination. Unionism wishes to maintain the union with Britain. And that's fine. They can argue that politics. They can make that case. We argue for a united Ireland because that's the best opportunity in our view for everybody who lives on the island and that's fine. But what we both must do is we have to play by the rule book and the rule book is the Good Friday Agreement and ultimately that you respect the rule book. The agreement is the agreement and we all operate within those parameters.
1: Very interesting to hear Mary Lou talk about the Good Friday Agreement with the respect for it as the rule book. Contrast that to the very cavalier and downright disrespectful attitude of the Tory government, who seem to think they can disapply bits of this international agreement just because they fancy it. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. As we're two weeks away from the council elections, parties right across the political spectrum are campaigning hard. And it has to be said, not always in the best of humour. There are at least five independent supporting parties fielding candidates. That's the SNP, the Greens, ISP, ALPA and Scottish Socialists. And they might all support independence, but they don't always support each other particularly on twitter it can get pretty nasty so it was a breath of fresh air to be involved in an event called indyx which was a gathering of a couple of different yes groups who had managed to put together an event in dunfermline in a sports hall which had a panel with representatives from the snp alapa and isp as well as non-party political commonweal group and the scottish independence forum I was live streaming the event for Independence Live that day. If you want to see the full event, you can see it on the Independence Live YouTube channel. Presentations from the panel members are all very watchable. But what I'm going to play now is a little compilation of the Q&A, which I thought teased out some more interesting points that weren't necessarily covered by their main speeches. So what you're going to hear is some of the audience questions and then the responses from whichever panel member or members chose to address that question. The responses come from Douglas Chapman, SNP, Robin McAlpine, and Amanda Bergauer, both Commonweal, and Alex Salmond from ALPA.
13: I do know that people who are professional politicians are increasingly a different species from people who are political activists. Now, this doesn't make the professional politicians outrageously selfish, it makes them Joe Soap. Most people in the street don't really want to give all their time and money to a cause. They want a a career that's got a nice um, wage and um, pension at the end and a bit of status and so on. That's what most people want. And increasingly, people who want a career in politics (laughs) will be drawn to the party that's in the foremost. How do we get the, um, yes, groups of political activists who are producing all these academic papers. I'm talking about people like Scottish Independence Convention, Scottish Independence Foundation, Commonweal and so on, producing all these answers to the unionist questions, how much real behind the scenes to and fro is there between them and the Scottish government who, as far as appearances go, aren't really answering these questions at all. This is not about the date for the referendum. We have to have the answers before we have the date as a starting point.
7: I think the reason that we need a date is that it concentrates the mind. And, you know, I think that's what we should be actually using as a, as a lever to get people together. You know, if we say we've got a year to do this, you know, people begin to take up the, the challenge at that point. Uh, if we say that we don't know when this is going to be, then, you know, I, I wouldn't find that particularly uh, motivating. There's a lot of individual groups out there who are doing some fantastic work. Uh, you know, Commonwealth the Commonwealth is one of them. And uh, But I, I get set stuff every, every single day from, uh, you know, all the airs of Scotland. Uh, about why we're not doing this, this would be a great idea to to develop our energy industry, Uh, you know here's some ideas on how we innovate in in academia and draw academia into business. so, So all that is happening but it's all it's all been done in like little silos and I think what we really need as a movement is to try and bring that movement back together, you know like get a repository in the middle somewhere that pulls in all these Ideas and energy that is already exists in Scotland, pull it all together, build that uh, together, and make the case. All the information that we need, I think, is already there. It's just a matter of how how do we best present that. And I think again, that the, the important thing is how does this change people's lives? You know, you've got to put that right in front of them and say, Here's "This is the concise message we're giving you." If if we do X, Y and Z, then, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a disabled person or an older person or, you know, a, a young working person, this is, this is how it's going to change your life.
0: Why is there no date so far? Because until there's a date, it's going to be hard to mobilize activists and motivate them far less the public, because there's no point going around people's doors and asking them. What do you think about independence when there's no date? It's like asking someone, Oh, what would you do if you won the lottery? Like it's just futile. So until there's a date, what's the point?
6: So very quickly, I, I take a slightly different position in this, which is um I want to make sure that we are road ready first. So I'd like to just make sure that the 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 car is properly serviced and um, the tanks filled before we shorthand with a date and I don't think we've done that yet. So I've, I've said a hundred times we weren't as prepared as we might have been in 2014, but we had no choice. Nobody in 2011 thought that we were going to have a majority SNP government a referendum in three years. We had to work with what we had. We had a couple of years to, to scramble something together to, as a pitch for independence. We have got time now. I mean, I think we've got time now. We've had time now. I, I want to make sure that when we fire this gun, we know we're ready. I'm personally sceptical that we're going to get a referendum next year and um, I actually think that um, one of the key moments is going to be when it starts to dawn on us that we probably don't have an absolutely immediate route to independence and I think that'll raise, that'll give us an opportunity to have some conversations that we've not been having I think um, in, in the movement but you're right that we need to galvanise a moment to get people focused but before we do that, I just want to make sure that we are very clearly aware between ourselves, all of us, that we are absolutely confident that when we fire the starting gun, we have everything in line and I don't think we do just now. Why do we need a referendum at all? So why can't the government just go ahead and give us independence? I I go on about this a lot, so here's the super fast version. What is independence? It's surprisingly ill-defined. Independence, when you go right down to an international nation state, is when everybody else thinks you're independent. There's not a club, there's not a thing you sign that makes you, you're now one of the independent nations. Once everybody else in the United Nations notices, agrees that you're independent, you're independent. Um, So Kosovo is not considered as being an independent nation state, even though it basically is because nobody's recognised it. So what gets us recognition? The correct answer is it's a recognition deal with, with the UK government. So that's what makes Scotland independent. As soon as the UK government says, okay, we've agreed it, we've given up, we've got a deal, that's it. The US will agree, everyone will agree, we're done. So the way I always encourage people to think about this, all we have to do is get a recognition agreement from the UK government. So everything that we do is about dragging them to the negotiating table. Now, the best way to get them to negotiate a table would be a Section 30 order and a referendum one. The second best way might be uh, uh, turning a, a, an election into a, a plebiscite. Uh, at the far end, in the most difficult of circumstances, declaring UDI, a, de- a Universal a Unilateral Declaration of Independence. If we ever got there, the purpose of that would still be to drag the UK government to the negotiating table. So I'm encouraging everyone to think about it in that terms. What we need is some kind of negotiated deal with the United Kingdom. All we have to do is get them to the negotiating table. Whatever we do, that's the purpose. The purpose is to get them there to accept. Games up, we're beat, they're out we need to negotiate and as soon as they recognize us we're independent everyone else will recognize us as independent so think about it in those terms how do we get them to the table that's the task
11: we're talking about 47 and percent showing support for in scottish self-determination at the moment what percentage of the remainder are people
4: who are here temporarily students or people on temporary work placement people who are just passing through sure. people who have um you know for
11: whatever reason are in Scotland, not permanently in Scotland, Um, people who don't have a permanent commitment or permanent stake in the future of Scotland?
5: Well, basically, you deal with the electorate you've got. Uh, I believe in civic franchise uh, and I think we just have to face that down and persuade the electorate. You couldn't have a separate electorate for a referendum than you have for an election. And the rules of being on the electoral roll for for an election are very clear. Uh, Also, I know that people run this line and they say how difficult it will be to persuade A, B, C. If we think about the Asian community in Scotland, some of whom are first, second, third, fourth generation, but some of whom arrived three months ago from the Punjab. If I'd been up to the Asian community in Scotland in 2014, we'd be independent because they voted over 60 percent for independence. So but if a generation ago we'd been at a SNP meeting a generation ago, They've probably been very worried about the Asian community in Scotland and their attitude to, to Scotland. This is about work. I believe you can persuade a majority of people on the electoral roll in Scotland to vote for independence. And all you have to do is supply the right a program, the right leadership, the right strategy, because the arguments are so strong. And I know it's difficult and some people are more loath to vote for independence than others. But a politician on a campaign can't change the electorate, they can only change the campaign to make sure it wins with the electorate they have.
7: There there are groups in in Scottish society that uh, the Yes campaign in 2014 didn't reach, and some some didn't want to hear the message anyway, but when you look back at previous referendums, the one to establish the Scottish Parliament for example, uh, needed the SNP to get that referendum over the line. They needed SNP voters and SNP support to do it. In the referendum for for independence, there was a lot of Labour voters who went against their party line basically and voted for independence and that's what got us to probably nearer 45, nearer to 50% for the next referendum. Then we need to get another group of Scots who can help us get back over the line. A lot of the talk at the moment is from the, the independent side, is from a, almost a, a left wing perspective. And we're ignoring a lot of people who are traditional Tory voters, who are disenfranchised with the fact that, you know, we're not part of the EU, uh, who are probably in, in the past would be described as one nation Tories and so on, who want to live in a fairer society. You know, they're, they're, they're thrilled to, to capitalism, but they're, they're not We've not convinced them yet and I think our campaign next time round needs to be a much wider campaign so we have a message for all these parts of society that said overall the independence offer is going to be attractive to all Scots and you know to take a pride in our country and make sure that we can make it the best country that we can make it with the talents that we have and the resources we have behind us.
1: So isn't it good that Commonweal's actually done some research on this? (laughs) The demographics of the independence vote in 2014 are not what you would expect. And the way that that vote or people's opinions have changed since 2014 is not what you would expect. There's a class issue in terms of the vote and it's a regional issue as well. So there is a report on the Commonweal website um, if you want to go and have a look at it, it's in the library, just do a search for demographics and it will pop up.
0: Does Scotland really, really, really want to be independent is the question as an Irishman I'm asking. And the second question, the second part of that, about, is about taking action. Why is the Scottish Government not acting every hour and every day as if it is independent? Right now. We're going to need, we're going to need recognition recognition, whatever the plebiscite or whatever the vote is. And right now we're letting Boris Johnson take take a train trip to Kiev, right, when we need Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine, Poland and the rest of the EU who despise the Boris Johnson government. We're going to need recognition from those countries. And the Ukrainians need our help. Europe needs our help and right now we should be acting as if we
7: are independent. I I I totally agree, I think they they, on the point that we should be acting as if we're an independent country and that goes for all of us and you know the, the governments tend to respond to what their electorate asks them to do or tell them to do and sometimes we need to give a lead. In my own instance as an MP. Uh, You know, I've been trying to set up a a ferry service between here and Zeebrugge. Something that the Irish people have done exceptionally well. The guy who's advising me set up three ferry services from South Ireland into Europe. Uh, I'm talking to the Nordic Council and looking at how they operate. I met with uh, Mika Harner, uh, who's a Finnish MP uh, a few weeks ago. Mika is desperate to have Scotland as part of the Nordic Council so we can act in a much more collaborative way, make sure that our voice can be heard along with our, our Nordic partners. As an individual, I'm trying to look out and act as if my country is already independent.
1: So great to see cross-party and non-representation on that panel in this kind of event. Hopefully the first of many more. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. In what may have been an attempt to deflect attention away from Partygate, Home Secretary Priti Patel has unleashed a plan which has even some Tories recoiling in horror. This, of course, is her proposal to take refugees and asylum seekers and send them to Rwanda, which she seems to regard as some kind of beacon of human rights excellence. If you cast an eye on the UK government's website, there is a lot of interesting advice about Rwanda, including the following paragraph. Grenade attacks have occurred sporadically over the last five years. Genocide memorial sites, markets, bus stops and taxis have been targets in Kigali. While such attacks have reduced in frequency, further indiscriminate attacks cannot be ruled out, including in places frequented by foreigners. You should remain vigilant. On the plus side, Patel has managed to unite Yvette Cooper, Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon in condemnation of her plan. So if it was intended as a distraction, then Patel has underestimated our ability to be appalled on more than one front at the same time.
14: We've seen over the last week, Mr Speaker, this unworkable, shameful and desperate attempt to distract from the Prime Minister's law-breaking that the Home Secretary should not go along with because she is undermining not just respect for the rule of law, but also her office by providing cover for him. The policies that she has announced today are unworkable, unethical and extortionate in the cost for the British taxpayer. There is no information from the Home Secretary about the costs today. Will she admit the £120 million she announced does not pay for a single person to be transferred? She has not actually got an agreement on the price for each person. In fact, the £120 million is the eye-watering price the Home Office is paying just for a press release. So, what's the rest of the cost? What is the year's, this year's budget? How many people will it cover? The Home Office has briefed it might be £30,000 per person to cover up to three months' accommodation, but that is already three times more than the ordinary cost of dealing with an asylum case in the UK. And her statement says she's going to provide five years of cost. Well, in Australia, offshoring costs £1.7 million per person, that is over a hundred times more than the ordinary asylum cost from here. So where is all the money going to come from in order to fund this plan? She says she's going to save money on hotels, but the only reason we're paying a fortune in hotel costs is because the Home Office decision-making has totally collapsed. On
13: her watch, Home Office are only
14: taking 14,000 initial asylum decisions That is half what they were doing five years ago, half. Taking fewer decisions than Belgium, Netherlands, Austria, never mind France and Germany. Yeah. So the costs to the UK taxpayer have soared by hundreds of millions of pounds because she isn't capable of taking the basic asylum decisions. And because she's not capable of taking those decisions, she is trying to pay Rwanda to take those decisions instead. Yeah. Whether the people are refugees or not, whether they are victims of modern slavery or not, whether they have family in the UK, whether they've come from Afghanistan, Syria or even Ukraine, she is asking them to do the job that she is not capable of. She says it will deter boats and traffickers, but the Permanent Secretary says otherwise. He says there is no evidence of a deterrent effect and there has been a total failure to crack down on criminal gangs that are at the heart of this problem. The prosecutions for human trafficking, for non-sexual exploitation, are down from 59 in 2015 to just two in 2020—just two. Well, the criminals will not be deterred because someone they exploited was sent to Rwanda. They do not give money-back guarantees, which means they lose money if their victims end up somewhere else instead. They will just spin more lies, and she is totally failing to crack down on those criminal gangs. So why not get on with her basic job instead? Properly crack down on human traffickers do the serious work with France and Belgium to prevent the boats setting off instead. She did not even mention in this statement and make decisions fast. The Homer Secretary is just using this policy to distract from years of failure. She promised three years ago to halve the number of crossings, and instead they have increased tenfold, and this will make it worse for trafficking. The top police chief and modern slavery commissioner has said her legislation will make it harder to prosecute traffickers when Israel tried paying Rwanda to take refugees and asylum seekers. A few years ago, independent reports showed it increased people smuggling and increased the action of the criminal gangs, and that is the damage she is doing. She is making it easier for the criminal gangs and harder for those who need support. At a time when people across our country have come forward to help those who are fleeing Ukraine, to help desperate refugees, instead of working properly with other countries, the Home Secretary is doing the opposite. All she is doing no, 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 no. is making it easier for the criminal gangs. So, will she tell us the facts, the real costs of this policy, the real damage yeah, it's going to do to much? human trafficking and people smugglers, and come clean with the public and come clean with the House? Yeah. Oh, Theresa May. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I say, with respect to my right honourable friend, and from what I have heard and seen so far of this policy, I do not support the removal to Rwanda policy on the grounds of legality, practicality and efficacy, but I want to ask her about one very specific issue. I understand that those who will be removed will only be young men, that families will not uh, be—well, the Home Secretary is shaking her head, so I have obviously misunderstood the policy in that sense—but if it is the case that families will not be broken up, and the Home Secretary is nodding, does she not believe, and where is her evidence, that this will not simply lead to an increase in the trafficking of women and children.
15: I think this uh, decision is utterly abhorrent, uh, morally and ethically abhorrent. It's a total abdication of the UK's moral and international responsibilities to asylum seekers and refugees, and it will also make it more challenging uh, and prolonged for people to seek safety from war and persecution. Uh, I think in uh, this decision the UK Government is ignoring the welfare of extremely vulnerable people um, and for all of these reasons this policy has rightly been condemned by many. Uh, When you hear uh, Theresa May uh, stand up in the House of Commons and remember Theresa May was the Home Secretary who sent uh, go-home vans around Glasgow describe this policy uh, as morally, ethically uh, and uh, practically wrong, then I think all of us have to realise how far from any moral course the UK government is going on this issue.
1: And we're going to finish up the podcast this month with an interview that Marlene did with two ladies who run the Indy2 Cafe. There's a saying that when terrible things happen, look for the kindness, look for the people who are helping. And the Indy2 Cafe is a lovely example of this.
10: Arbroath Harbour is looking very bonny, and I'm standing here talking to two lasses who are part of the Indie Two Cafe. Do you want to tell us a bit about it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. We we actually started the Indie Two Cafe on Facebook um, just over a year ago now. And the whole idea behind it then we opened up zoom every afternoon every night we've got the pub on a saturday night to make it a place for people to come in and have a chat you know they didn't have to yeah yeah because obviously lockdown was hard on us all um and then when it came into the summer we thought the rallies were starting up again, and we thought, "Why don't we take the cafe out to the rallies um, and do tea, coffee, rolls, cakes for a donation?" Um, and the first one worked really well. <laughs> so, as I said, we were able to donate money to Baby Bank Scotland, who do fantastic. A job. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and from then on in, we've given money to food banks because um, obviously there was a lot of big marches last year. Yeah. We waited until the run up to Christmas and we gave money to Dunfermline Food Bank, who's the Manic of the Woods, and to Dumfries, who's Lorna and Neil's. Mm. Um, so now we're collecting again to move forward with a more charitable organisation um, and Fantastic. just basically help where we can. That's good. We are going to be helping Independence.
10: Yeah. Oh, well, that's, even, to, that's good. Yeah. I know, because all, all, well, Independence well, Live, but not not just us, but, I mean, there's a big job in hand to get through the campaign to hopefully the referendum the end of next year, well, so, him. yeah, that's every it. wee bit helps, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, it's yeah. great talking to you. Come
15: over for a brew.
10: Oh, we, we will,
4: it. yeah, definitely, we'll be we'll needing go, it. we well, have been up this morning, these ladies, while I was filling flasks of water, these <laughs> ladies were all had a conveyor belt oh. on making up rolls as <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all
10: just, it did, it worked it's, well. we It works through. well when so you're doing it with your pals as well, actually, it's but, good.
4: This
1: interview comes from the All Under One Banner March at Our Broth, which was also this month. You can watch the whole event on Independence Live's YouTube channel. And if you want just highlights, there is a vlog that Marlene and I did from our visit there, which is available on our Indie Live Extra YouTube channel and on our website, which is podcasts.independencelive.net. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again next month. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces.